Welcome to Fifth Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode, I'm joined by Joseph Woodbury, the CEO of Neighbor, a peer-to-peer storage marketplace and Fifth Wall portfolio company. We discuss the current state of the self-storage industry and how the Neighbor platform provides a modern alternative to traditional storage. Enjoy the conversation. Joseph, thank you so much for joining. Are you uh, coming in from Salt Lake? I am, yeah. We're, I'm, I'm here in our office in Lehigh. Nice. Well, this is certainly the, the, the closest Zoom meeting I think I've ever done. I'm in Park City, so we're like 20 miles away, but uh, going we, through we the should, data center should, in between us. We should have done it in person. I know, but then we can't record it. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so can you just start by telling people you know, your story personally, but then also the story of, of founding Neighbor and just what the company does? Yeah, so uh, we started this out of school and there's three founders, there's myself, there's Preston, there's Colton. I don't think any of us were planning on doing a startup. Uh, I was kind of on the professional services track. I'd worked at an investment bank and a private equity firm and, and then went and worked for Bain and Company. Uh, kind of all the, all the boring careers, right? Um, that summer after I got back from interning with Bain, I came back and my good friend Preston, uh, that summer I was with Bain, he had been down in South America. He ran a videography company through school. And one of his clients was a big multinational humanitarian org down in South America. He needed a place to store his items while he was down there for the summer filming. And he looked into getting a storage unit and kind of had the same experience that everyone has when they try to get a storage unit. It was going to be a half hour drive to some industrial park in the next town over because none of the local facilities had any occupancy. And he was going to have to pay, you know, two, three hundred dollars a month, which is crazy. I mean, for anyone, let alone a student. Um, And it was all for this like dirty, dingy storage box. So he was like, there's no way I'm going to do this. This is a crappy solution. And he found a friend that summer that allowed him to store his items in his garage. Well, fast forward to the end of the summer, he gets back, goes to pick his items up and just kind of has the thought like, this was so much better. I felt so much more peace of mind knowing my items were in a nice, clean garage than in one of those storage units. And I saved a lot of money. Like, why doesn't everyone do this? Why? Why is there not some sort of national directory for garages? There's got to be an empty garage in every single neighborhood in the country. He, we met up, you know, at the beginning of our senior year, he told me about this idea and I was like, wow, that's the best idea I've ever heard in my whole life. This absolutely needs to exist. Uh, We, along with our third co-founder Colton started working on this throughout our senior year. We all, again, all had full-time jobs lined up and about halfway through our senior year, we called up our jobs and told them we weren't going to show up and, and uh, neighbor was born. And, you know, I'm curious, like from your perspective, the idea of storing your stuff with a neighbor is like this so intuitive. It's almost like a opportunity that, that feels like it's hiding in plain sight. Like it's, it's so obvious that maybe, you know, it, it took some kind of 
critical juncture in technologies development or, you know, the shared shared economy development to to enable this kind of a solution. But like, what's your explanation for why it took and, you know, so long for this kind of an obvious solution to emerge? Well, that is definitely one of the things we quickly realized after building the business is that we didn't invent this idea. This is a super old idea um, that goes back, you know, kind of throughout history. People have always been finding a neighbor to store their trailer or like, you, you know, you store your, your trailer at your dad's house or something like that. We, we found that there was all these ads all over Craigslist of, of people trying to do this very thing. All we did is to come in and systematize it, right? All we did is to come in and create the platform and the safety and the trust and the payment system for them to be able to do this. But people were already doing this on an ad hoc basis. I, I do think there's a bit of acceptance to answer your question of the sharing economy. We had these kind of pioneers with Airbnb and Uber, which are a much, much higher risk profile. It's, it's much more risky to go sleep in someone's house. Insofar as inherently those, those existing kind of peer-to-peer sharing economy networks are typically about facilitating interactions or commercial transactions between strangers, otherwise strangers, right? And yet you're kind of in this hyper-local, you're kind of almost... Uh, redimensionalizing that to be like hyper local, which is something that people already do, right? This is kind of like a, you know, technologically enhanced derivative of like asking your neighbor for salt, right? Which is like something that people have always historically done. That's exactly right. In the consumer mindset, if, if you're willing to get in a car with a complete stranger in Chicago, you know, when you go visit Chicago for Uber, then it's a much, much lower risk profile to go store your Christmas tree in, in your neighbor's garage all year long until you need it again. So just kind of waiting the, the right amount of time. When we launched, we feel like it was the perfect moment where everyone was like, oh yeah, this is a no brainer. Like I have no qualms about using a service like this. I already use services that are way more invasive into my life. This is a much less invasive. In fact, it's a, it, it actually facilitates relationships, you know, between me and my community members. Like you said, it's kind of like borrowing salt. There's almost a positive vibe. It's not just transactional. There's also an aspect of relationship building on our platform that I think is really unique. And I, I'm curious, like, cause that, that's, I think one of the defining features of neighbor is this, this kind of hyper locality, this kind of high trust relationship. That's like, premised on being neighbors, right? Being proximate to one another. What else can you do with that, right? So today you're in the business of storing stuff with your neighbor, largely. Um, but over time, where do you see that going? And we're based out of Utah. You know, I think that's, that's important to state. We're, we're building the first, what we consider to be the first major marketplace out of the Bay Area. But Utah has, as you know, li- living in Utah recently, Utah has a very unique community culture. It is, it is much more tight-knit um, these days than, than many other states. And we almost view ourselves through neighbor exporting that, that community, those community values to other communities. So like storage is not the end game for us. We think we'll grow to be a very large storage provider, but we very much want to, um, almost become your go-to technology tool to interact with your neighbors along all sorts of different verticals. And, Obviously, uh, not ready to kind of lay out the exact roadmap yet, but you could use your imagination to see how there are a lot of ways that you can interact 
and provide services with your neighbor and almost taking us back to an earlier era when you did seek and and find a lot of services locally in your neighborhood um, we want we want to recreate that because we think people are craving that uh, now they they really want to interact with their neighbors and they have this inherent trust for their neighbors it's why we call our our company neighbor and not like you know play on the word storage yeah it's interesting because you know it's like sharing economy solutions started where you know all tech solutions start in, in the bay area and there was a kind of comfort in the sense that everyone is trying out this this new thing where a stranger is driving you around or you're staying in a stranger's house but there are some transactions that happen in the economy that are you know very intimate um, and you know re- require a certain level of trust um, in the counterparty that for example taking a ride doesn't necessarily require it just requires the person to safely convey you to wherever you're going but I'll give an example like my dog it's like when I travel, I would much prefer my dog to stay in my neighbor's house than in some random person who professionally, you know, keeps dogs in in Salt Lake City. And it's interesting to think about like that spectrum of transactions that that the consumers engage in and how the importance of local kind of moves across that spectrum. And I almost think it's the highest value transactions that, that consumers are probably most unwilling to interact with a stranger around, whereas it's the most commodity transactions that you're most willing to interact with a stranger through. And I, I want to talk, you know, in particular about COVID, which is, you know, the experience of this was obviously shocking to everyone, um, certainly where you operate. And it, it almost feels like there was this demographic reshuffling that happened. It's like at the same time that people kind of um, receded into their own homes and were forced to, they also kind of reevaluated where they wanted to live and where they wanted to go, or they spent time, you know, outside of where they normally live. I imagine that was a huge boon to your business. Can you talk about just what were the effects of COVID on neighbor? I think most businesses were kind of freaking out, um, evaluating their future and and unsure about what was to come. Uh, Storage as an asset class was the best performing real estate asset class during the 08 recession. It's very kind of acyclical or, or maybe even counter-cyclical. Uh, and, and that's what we saw play out last year. Storage demand actually went through the roof. All the large storage REITs ended the year with 95% occupancies. And the reasons for that are because one, moving activity uh, massively increased, as we've all seen in the news. Everyone moving, a lot of people moving out of these large cities. And there is nothing that drives storage activity, like moving activity. So you saw a lot more demand for storage. We're all kind of confined to our homes during COVID. And when you're confined to your home, you pay attention to your home more. So you start organizing it, you start, you know, moving stuff out into storage unit. You may need to clean out a space for a home office because you're working from home or a home gym because all the gyms are shut down. We saw so many people just remodeling their homes and they need storage for that. So storage demand went through the roof. Well, we, what I don't know that we completely anticipated though was that it would also affect our the supply side of our business and there were two ways that the supply side of our business was affected first and foremost you just had a lot of people that needed income while we were waiting on the government you know to issue stimulus checks etc people needed income and they needed a way to get that income and uh, traditional gig economy solutions were not options for them you couldn't and also, go drive this, is, for, this is like true passive income, right? This is about as passive as you can get. 
It's true. Yeah, it's it's kind of the first income that that you don't have to go drive around all day to earn this income or or you know have a big fancy Airbnb to earn income. But on top of that, like Uber was shut down. You know, you couldn't even take an Uber in in most of these big cities. Airbnb and the travel market took a huge hit during COVID. So all of those earnings dried up and people were like, I need a way to earn income from my home without leaving my home. And it has to be income I can earn from the local economy. It, it can't depend on the travel market. So we saw a lot of host activity. And then, in, you know, the other interesting thing on the supply side was that we, we had started working with these commercial pro- providers a few years before, retail spaces, uh, office spaces, and that had been a growing successfully. And then COVID hit and all of a sudden, all of these commercial landlords all over the country are, are thinking, well, how am I going to fill my space? How am I going to fill my office space, my retail space? People are cutting their leases, they're leaving. And we were able to step up and say, well, we can fill it with storage demand and storage demand can provide these predictable recurring cash flows for you over the long-term future. In fact, even once COVID goes away, you should probably diversify a portion of your portfolio um, to have some sort of like stable storage cash flow so this doesn't happen to you again. And so that that commercial space on our platform, like 10x last year, and and Fifthwell was actually a part of helping us source some of those commercial relationships. That's what we, we love to do. And I think landlords during COVID... Um, became acutely aware of how much excess space that they in fact have and you can even <laughs> yeah. make that um, actually generate income. But I guess, you know, one of the questions I have, which is, you know, when you think about, you know, all the self-storage facilities that are built all across the U.S. And then if you were to compare that to all the under roof space, right, in people's garages, in basements, in empty office space and empty retail space, like, what's the scale? Like, what's the, how, how much kind of self-storage is there? Dedicated, you know, true, built and designed self-storage assets. How big is that? And how does that compare to all the vacant space that we already have built under roof? I'm just yep. curious about that from a magnitude perspective. Yeah, so there's today already <laughs> built, uh, there's, there's over 2 billion square feet of self-storage in the United States. In fact, the, the most recent stat I saw, I think was 2.8 billion uh, square feet of storage which is really hard to conceptualize. So I'll I'll try to give some examples of how to conceptualize that. 2.8 billion square feet of storage. If you were to take every man, woman, and child in the United States, you could simultaneously fit them all in a storage unit comfortably. Like they would be able to spread out and live in a storage unit. That's how much storage uh, we've built. Another, Another example we like to use because you don't really see storage facilities. They're kind of in these industrial parks, so they're a little bit out of sight, out of mind. So we'll, we like to compare it to fast food because fast food is very visible. You know, McDonald's has like their big golden arches. And, and so you know how many locations are around you. You know how many Starbucks are around you. And if you're just to look at it on a location basis, there are more self-storage locations than there are McDonald's, Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts, Burger Kings, Wendy's, Domino's, Walmart's, Home Depot's, and Costco's combined. It's insane, you know, the the numbers there. There's about 14,000 McDonald's in the United States. There's over 60,000 storage facility locations. And so if you go to a town that's so small, it doesn't even have a post office, that town is going to have several storage facilities. That's how widespread this this American need is. Huh, that's so that's so interesting. And when you compare that then to like the 
you know, from an environmental perspective, it seems like it's just obviously so inefficient to build these kind of dedicated structures that are basically glorified sheds specifically to store items for consumers when we've already built a lot of it. Like my garage sits half empty. I should probably be, you know, a neighbor customer pretty soon. When you think about the carbon impact of that and decarbonizing our economy and how much embodied carbon is actually captured in all these self-storage facilities, the impact of migrating towards just repurposing space from a carbon perspective could be dramatic, right? Yeah. And you guys have done a lot of work on this. A lot of people, when they think about carbon emissions, their their first thought is like some factory somewhere or cars, you know, and the emissions we get from cars uh, or, or, you know, agriculture or airplanes or, or these things. What they don't realize is that one of the top two largest, you know, producers of carbon emissions is buildings themselves. Bill Gates recently addressed this, you know, he just came out with his, his recent book on, on carbon emissions. And one of the strongest points he makes in the book is that the single largest unsolved problem that we need to tackle over everything else. Uh, in his opinion, the single largest unsolved problem we need to tackle in order to really make a dent in climate change is the production of concrete and steel. And when I read that, I was like, okay, so a storage facility is basically two things, concrete and steel. And we've built literally 2.8 billion square feet of it. And there's so much unused space around us. What if we just more efficiently used the space that's already built? And the storage industry isn't slowing down. I mean, the, you mentioned retail and, and, and hospitality and all of these other commercial providers. Self-storage has been the fastest growing segment within all of commercial real estate for four decades straight. The industry is putting about $5 billion a year just into new construction. And our goal is to open up so much space that that number goes to zero, that we're, we're spending, you know, $0 billion a year on, on self-storage. And already today, we've been fairly successful. I want to ask a few just like very fast questions toward the sure. end. Um, sure. So if you can, we keep these like a lightning round of like 10 seconds um, okay. as a response. But I'm just curious, how would, you know, of, of all the things that you've heard about and learned about in the self-storage industry, what would people be most shocked to learn about the industry? This, they'd be shocked to learn about the safety of the industry. One in 10 storage facilities is broken into every year, very low security. And two storage facilities don't insure any of your items. So if you go to a storage facility, it floods. You are, according to their terms of service, completely on the hook. It's really interesting. You have two other co-founders in your business. What are some of the tips that you would, you know, give future entrepreneurs around how should it, how should you identify the right co-founder for your business? Yeah, and and I was fortunate that they were willing to let me come along for the ride. Preston was the one that came up with the idea, but actually the biggest reason that I decided to leave Bain and do a startup was not because of the idea, which I thought was genius. But because I thought these are the type of people I want to work with after I'm done with Bain anyway, just super high integrity, highly motivated individuals that I could trust. So I'd key off the high integrity thing over everything else. Last question. So you see a lot of people storing a lot of items. What's the craziest item you've seen you've seen someone store in a self-storage facility? I'll I'll kind of name the items that come to mind. And and these might not all be crazy, but we do a lot of like we didn't anticipate this, but we see a lot of like classic cars. So we're, you know, some 67 uh, Corvette, you know, stored on our platform because 
he doesn't want to store it in some storage facility. He wants it close to his home so he can take care of it, take it out for a drive, that sort of thing. We see a lot of that. Other items, if you've ever seen those lantern festivals, uh, I've got four kids. So if you've watched the movie Tangled, where they have all those lanterns go up in the the air. The flying ones? The flying ones, yeah. yeah. The largest lantern festival company in the country stores all of their lanterns when they're not in use between shows on Neighbors platform. That's kind of a weird item. And is it just out of curiosity, is it spread out or is it all in one centralized facility? It's it's all in one centralized location. And it's actually stored in a res we have both the commercial and the residential locations. And they store all of this in a residential location. It's it's that's pretty amazing. To to kind of round it off, I'll say one thing we didn't anticipate storing was like fleets. We have large fleets of trucks being stored on our platform, big commercial uh, fleet owners that had been working with brokers, you know, until we got in contact with them. And then they fired all their brokers because they're like, oh my gosh, you created a platform that just gives me at my fingertips, everything that my broker was doing, uh, you know, on my behalf. And now I can, in whatever city my fleet happens to end up on, I I can just put it somewhere and it makes the logistics so much easier. That's so interesting. Well, Joseph, thank you for sharing all this. It's so interesting to learn what what Neighbor's doing and Fifth Wall is, you know, so thrilled to be an investor. So congrats on everything you've built. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.